Good morning. It's great to see you today. I want to just open this whole series, which by now you've probably realized we're shifting gears, moving into a new series. Five weeks leads us up to Easter. Can you believe in five weeks is Easter, right? It's amazing, right? You know what Easter means? Spring, right? That's what most of us are thinking. Forget an empty tomb. It's like springtime. No, I'm joking. But uh, I tell you what, the older I get, every year that goes by, I, I, you know, I kind of wish winter was like a week shorter every year. Like, I like the seasons. I don't mind living in a place where there's four seasons. I like that. But um, I guess I'm getting old. And uh, winter could be a month for me, and it'd be great. A couple snows, get it out of the way, and get back to spring and fall. But um, centered around this one word, passion. Passion. You'll, you'll see this all over. You'll, 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 you'll turn on the TV and something will talk about the Passion Week. You'll see it uh, in newspapers and stuff like that. Passion, passion, passion. That's a word that we're going to see uh, throughout our culture over the next month as we think about um, what Easter is and all that it entails. I, w- I want to make this statement to you, um, and I want you to think about this over the next five weeks. Passion changes the world. Passion changes the world. Knowledge is good. Knowledge is good. We are a a, a culture that is intent on educating ourselves, right? And we have been able to gain more and more and more knowledge And because of that, our culture, our society, our civilizations are uh, more comfortable. We live longer. Um, We are able to do more and experience more. Don't get me wrong. Knowledge is good. Knowledge is good. Skill, ability is good. All of us, no doubt, are looking for that purpose in life where we can find, we can marry what we do well, what we are wired to do, and an opportunity to do that, and we find purpose and meaning in this world. Skill and ability are good. Knowledge is good. Skill is good. Ability is good. But the thing that will be missing from you and I changing the world and making a difference, if we have skill and we have knowledge and we lack passion, it will be lasting, or it will be fleeting. It will be temporary, and it will not make a difference. Passion is what changes this world. I got a lot, of, a lot of smart people who say that over and over, who have experienced life, seen things in life, come back, and, and their simple conclusion is passion is what made the difference. I would say that in our community, just here in Napoleon, there are events There's programs, there's different kinds of things, traditions. Our community does experiences that enhances our community, that that we really enjoy, that benefit people in our community, that create this, this healthy community. There's a lot of things that have been done that are done that started the genesis of those things were because somebody had a passion for that. 
And that passion burned so deep within them that it caused them to not only just know about something or have the ability to do something, but that passion drove them to see that program, that event, that whatever it is, it drove them to see it come to pass, to see it happen, to see it live, to see it carry on. There was a passion within them that caused them to make sure that when they're done and out of the way or they're moving beyond that, that somebody else will step in and keep that thing going. It's passion that makes the difference in our world. A lot of smart people who aren't making a difference. A lot of talented people who aren't making a difference. But I want to tell you what, when you have somebody that develops a passion for something, the opportunity to make a difference is there. And then when you marry it with knowledge and ability and you put passion in the middle of it, watch out, right? Passion changes our world. And this word is so central to what this season is about and why for however many years now and decades and centuries they've called this the Passion Week because Jesus' passion, his life passion was all about the events of this coming week. Everything that he lived for, always where he was going, And what kept him just single-focused, single-minded was this passion within him to get to this season that we celebrate this week that we're going to spend time just sitting in and thinking about and looking at. His passion drove him to this. You know, it's Luke chapter 9, this verse that in Luke it like, changes the whole book a little bit it's simply this as the time approached he realized okay it's getting near Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem resolutely set out for Jerusalem I mean the passion of his life when he realized it's coming time to see this come to pass I mean, there was nothing that deterred him. He became so single-minded, so focused to get to Jerusalem and see this happen. You know, I want to just spend some time over these these next five weeks thinking about what happened. And hopefully our intent is to talk about every day of this last week of Jesus through this series. Um, I want to remind you of what's going on. Jesus is winding down, right? Now he has, he is really focused on doing a few things. He focused on signs and wonders, making them more incredible than they ever were. Namely in the, uh, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had done a lot of things. A lot of A lot of blind people can see. A lot of crippled people could walk. A lot of demons were cast out. All miraculous signs and wonders. But there is nothing that he did that was more remarkable than raising a man from the dead. All right? Four days in a tomb. Um, uh, 
Nothing more miraculous than that. That's the big deal. That's the headline news. That's the front page article, right? He waits to do this until a few weeks before his final week. He is ramping up the signs and wonders of who he is. At the same time, he is really going at it with the religious leaders of that day. He is not uh, avoiding any kind of conflict. He is, in fact, he is, I mean, he is really ramping up the conflict. He is trying to get them to a point where they are absolutely sick and tired of this teacher from the small town in Galilee and all those people that are listening to him and following him. They, are, they have reached their max and they are fed up. So that's kind of, as we are thinking about, okay, so Chip, we're going to talk about the last week of Jesus. Well, what's happening before it? Signs and wonders are at this all-time high. Uh, conflict with the religious system of that day is, I mean, it's brewing. It's, it's about ready. It's ready, right? It's, it's the pot's ready. He also is doing things like he's going into a town and he's, he's being able to encounter a, a guy who was a government official in that town, uh, a short guy named Zacchaeus, who, uh, I mean, you talk about dirty politician, that's Zacchaeus. Um, uh, you talk about somebody who hated, um, scorned. Um, Jesus is encountering him. He's pouring into Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is, is having a life-changing experience and the whole community is affected by it. That's Jesus. He's changing communities. He's healing dead people and he's fighting with the religious people. That's the context of, of what starts this week off. Now you'd have to also understand what's going on in the world. The world is... Um, it's ruled by the Romans, right? And uh, the Jewish land, Israel, is no different. 63 BC, Rome comes in and takes over. Now, the Jewish people, they had been captive or slaves to somebody for so long. Hundreds of years after hundreds of years. If it wasn't the Greeks, it was the Babylonians. It was just over and over and over they had been allowed to go back to their homeland after Babylon had come in and just ransacked the country and took people off. Finally, Nehemiah was able to go back and now for three or four hundred years they've been building it back up and they've been building the city and they've built the country, they've built the land. But honestly, they're still governed by somebody else. And this time it's the Roman Empire. Now, unlike the other... Or, more so than the other empires, Rome was a rough, rough empire. I mean, you talk about holding somebody with an iron fist. Talk about putting your boot right on somebody's neck and just holding down. That was the Roman Empire. And these Jewish people who had this identity, I am God's, we are God's special people. They have this... Um, this mindset about them that they are the chosen ones to be held captive is grating enough, but to suffer under the heavy hand of Rome is always causing this unrest in there. And there's little rebellions always popping up and get enough people together who are sick and tired of it and so they would try to do something and, and they would try to uprise and they would try to overthrow this little part of the Roman army here and they would try to get the people stirred up and it just was always just 
a state of unrest. I don't think it's something like we've ever experienced and we can ever even imagine. But literally every day you'd go down to the coffee shop, people are arguing back and forth about, well, that might happen, but <laughs> that's still happening everywhere, right? But I mean, literally, like it's just unrest and like it's, it's, it's so tense. It's so tense. And the people are so ready to experience something new. That's what's going on. At the same time, the city of Jerusalem in this week or in these, about the week and a half, is full of people. This is the Passover time. So everybody, man, you try to make your way to Jerusalem. It's the Passover celebration. It's the big deal of the year. It's the, you know, and, and so literally, Hundreds of thousands to, I believe, a couple million people are in the city. They're there because they believe they're God's chosen people and they're following God's chosen laws and celebrating his chosen acts. And, and uh, so they're there, man. They, they, are, they are national pride. National feeling is, is, is everywhere. You get more and more people coming together. And man, they are they are. They are feeling it. In fact, I've read historical data that says they've been able to document that 10 years after this specific Passover, 10 years, they were able to record 10 years later that 260,000 lambs were slaughtered during that week of Passover. Now the Jewish law says that you could have one lamb per 10 people. If that's true, then theoretically, 10 years after this Passover, there was 2.6 million people in this town. And they're all Jews. And they all hate Rome. And they all want to be free. And they're all not experiencing what God had promised, right? And so this is the whole, uh, the whole situation that Jesus is now going to live his last week in. Unrest. Lots of people. There was a buzz. There was an angst. And into that situation, a guy who's raising people from the dead, who's helping change communities by changing government officials' lives, who's arguing with this whole system and winning people over and making those guys look bad, here he comes to town. He comes in on a Saturday night. Right, And he comes into that little town of, of Bethany. That's where Lazarus lived. And Mary and Martha, those are his close friends. In fact, I think all through this week, up until Thursday night when he's taken for trial, he stays at Bethany with his friends. That's where he stays. And he gets there on Saturday night. And uh, Sunday morning rolls around. And honestly, on Sunday, he, he, uh, he just stays in town. In Bethany, I guess he just hung out with his friends. Um, by that evening, we read where John, who's all about sequence, John records that before he ever were to ride into the city, Mary, his friend, um, uh, is so overwhelmed by who Jesus is and what he's done that she takes a bottle of perfume 
And you remember the story, right? Expensive. I mean, I'm talking like half a year's wage or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. But I mean, it wasn't just like $10 perfume. It wasn't just like $100 perfume. This is expensive stuff. And she literally breaks it open and pours it all out on his feet, no less, right? And this is when Judas Iscariot, you, real, you, you, you become aware that Judas, this act right here, caused him to just literally flip over the top. Because Judas was, if anything, he was um, loved money. He was the treasurer of the group. He was driven by money. In fact, this whole idea was that Jesus is going to bring about a kingdom and we're going to get wealthy from it. And he looked at this and he realized, what is going on? What a waste of money. We could have sold that. We could have helped our cause. By, and she just spills it out onto his feet and then she's washing his feet with her hair. It's on this Sunday night. Monday morning comes. And Jesus tells his disciples, and and here's what we're going to read. I want to be intentional about reading these passages this week or this month. Just taking time to to read through the story a little bit so you can just allow your mind to grab a hold of it. It's in all four Gospels. I chose Matthew. I just like the way Matthew uh, writes it out. But all four Gospels are there. And Mark, if, if most of you are aware that Mark was written first. Mark is the earliest Gospel. And so he's really short and to the point and probably how you wish I was, you know, like, can you change your name to Mark? Can you become Mark? But Matthew uh, wrote this later, and he adds some details, no doubt, on purpose. But he says, as they approached Jerusalem and they came to this town called Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, and, and really, honestly, we can't even, we don't even know where Bethpage is now, can't even find it. Um, and archaeological digs. It, it just was a little burg past Bethany toward Jerusalem, but on the Mount of Olives. And if you remember, and I just have to do this with my hand because I didn't put a map up there, but uh, if you see in the eastern wall of Jerusalem's right here, this is the eastern wall. Then you have the Kidron Valley. You walk out of the Jerusalem and you go down into a valley. And then you would come back up on this, the Mount of Olives, right? And then it would plateau out, and then you could walk that, that way, and it would be uh, Bethany, where Jesus had healed Lazarus, where he was staying. So he's starting to move toward Jerusalem. On that Monday morning, he says, listen, in the town ahead of us, two disciples, he says, go to the village ahead, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They placed their cloaks on them and Jesus sat on them. And as he was moving toward Jerusalem now, on a donkey, a large, very large crowd spread their cloaks on the floor, <coughs> on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed. Again, he's in Bethany on Sunday and people are aware, the great teacher's there. They're kind of, hey, what's he gonna do? We wanna be around, kind of the, you know, the latest act in town, so to speak. And so as he begins to move toward Jerusalem, people are moving that way anyway through the week, but Jesus is going so they're attracted. So there's a crowd behind him, but also ahead, word is spreading down that he's coming in. And as he's doing that, people start to put their clothes on the road in front of him and they have cut these palm branches, right? All of us have had our kids do this in church and wave the palm branches, right? These branches, this symbol of, of victory that's always, uh, it's always kind of been something, even the Romans used palm branches, but the Jewish people did also. In fact, on their coins, they had a palm branch. The Jewish coins had a palm branch. It's victory, it's triumph, it's conqueror, it's, is that enough words? That's good, because I ran out in my mind. It's, and so they're waving these things, right? And here he comes, and they're yelling this Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city, again, I think it's a couple million people, are moved by this event it gained their attention and asked, who is this? Now, very common, very customary for a king or a conquering warrior, a general, to leave their home city, to go out, to conquer lands, to conquer people. And they would do this and they would head back home with their, the goods they had plundered and the people they had captured and the things, the treasures they had gained. And they're coming, he's coming home with his army and was so often he would get within a day or two ride and he would send somebody ahead and say, listen, we're coming home. We're gonna be there in a day or two. And as he would approach the city, the people would already, knowing he's close, would already have had provided this kind of entrance to a conquering king, to a, to a conquering general. This is so familiar to them. This is what you do when you are a king, when you're a conqueror, right? And that general would ride in, and, and most always he was riding a horse, and normally a white, a white stallion, right? Nothing like a white stallion that signified conqueror, king. Jesus is doing that. In fact, for his whole ministry, he's been hiding. He would heal somebody and he'd say, hey, don't tell anybody. Or the crowd, he'd five, you know, five loaves, two fish, feed everybody, Hey, let's start it right now. We got our guy. He's going to have food for us. And, you know, it's, it's a food and health care type deal. Jesus was that guy, right? What everybody needs, what everybody wants. He's that guy. Let's make him king. And he would, like, slip away and get away. It's not my time. I'm not interested. I'm not, that's not the guy I am. But now he's totally changed. He's riding in just like a king would. Now he's riding in on a donkey. They totally, you can tell, missed that. Or they got it 
but it meant something else for them. But he is deliberately, provocatively making a statement to the whole world now. I am here and I am king. In fact, the words they're proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118 stuff. That's Halil stuff. That's this kind of stuff that's reserved for a Messiah. And Jesus is not hiding from that anymore. He is boldly proclaiming, I am that guy. And the the crowd is absolutely nuts, right? In fact, the whole city, what is going on? Now, Jesus rides in, and you would expect the story to go, and he finds a, a control center, and he gathers some really capable guys who he makes generals, and they start to strategically plan how that he could become the king. And he's got these hundreds of thousands of people who would support him. And so all of a sudden they just, they uprose. And just in mass, they forced out the Romans. And they established the king and kingdom in Jerusalem again. And then because of that, they were able to then chase Rome out of the other cities. And he is now the king. Right? That's how the story, I guess I would have wrote it. He comes in, he rides in, he looks around and he leaves. What? All that support, all that momentum, all that enthusiasm, let's go. And he looks around and he goes back to Bethany. What kind of conquering general is this? What kind of king? And this is the day that we affectionately call Palm Sunday, right? Maybe I've messed with your mind a little bit, but I believe the historical data and scholarship, I believe, is weighted toward the fact that what we celebrate as Palm Sunday was actually Palm Monday. Monday was the day he came in and did this. Tuesday and Wednesday he teaches. Tuesday he overthrows the temple. And remember that in Anger, righteous anger, he throws the money over and all that stuff. Wednesday, he's teaching all this weighty stuff, like uh, just crazy stuff that we, we know when you hear it. You're like, oh, yeah, I remember Jesus taught that. Thursday, he's going to be with his disciples. But Monday's the day he comes in, and he starts this whole thing. He makes a statement, and then he leaves. I think there's a few things we can learn from this. And they are this. Just some principles I want to take, I want to walk away with from. One, God's plans are unstoppable. Now, if any of you remember last year, <laughs> yeah, right, right? That's what's cool about this now. People don't remember, so I guess I could just preach sermons over and over. Oh, yeah, good sermon, Pastor. I don't remember. I don't do that. But every time I look at Palm Sunday, this is the huge conclusion I come to. This point, which I talked about last year. You can't look at this whole story and see how he brought everybody to this euphoric high about him. 
how he, honestly, guess what? Lazarus, <laughs> I know he thought it was great that he got to die once and come back. I don't know if he thought it was great to die twice. But I mean, I'd have been game for that. I'd have been all right with dying and rising again. You know, sign me up, 60 minutes, you know. Made a little coin off that, had the greatest life experience ever. I was in the tomb four days and I'm walking around. But really, Lazarus was for one reason. It really wasn't for Lazarus' sake. It was to get people to get so high on Jesus that they could come to this moment on Sunday. They could start to believe this stuff. Lazarus was a part of God's plan for Palm Monday. For this day. You see, God carefully, how he did things, what he taught, what he did, where he went, he was all carefully planning that it would come to this point. He orchestrated it all so that people would be so high in him on Sunday and then they would watch him ride in and do nothing. And then they would watch him the next day ride in and instead of overthrow Rome, he would overthrow their temple. And he does nothing on Tuesday and Wednesday. He doesn't organize an army and he doesn't name generals and he doesn't have a cabinet and he's doing nothing until basically by Thursday they're all like, this guy's just another phony fraud messiah. And so if you're gonna give us a choice, he's disappointed us just like all the others. Go ahead and crucify that guy because he got our hopes so high and then he does nothing. It was all part of God's plan. Because Jesus' passion was the cross. I gotta get to the cross. And in order to get to the cross, I gotta disappoint them so bad that they're willing to yell, crucify him. They're willing. These people who I've healed, who I've touched, who I've, who I've, uh, who I've changed their lives, the same people are like, yep, he did some great things, but he is not who he said he is. Get rid of this guy. You see, God carefully orchestrates this. And this day reminds us that God's plans are unstoppable. You know what I want to remind you of? This morning, that same God who did this, worked this, this is his character, this is his nature, says in his word to his children that he will never leave them nor forsake them. And he says things like this. Philippians says, he that has begun a good work in you will be what? Faithful to complete it. That's an unstoppable word. It's the same kind of idea when, when Paul writes that, you know, all that we go through, all the different storms of life through persecution and distress and famine, and he lists all this stuff, and he ends this way. He says, no, regardless of all that stuff, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I want to remind you today, what does Palm Monday mean to me? It reminds me that God's plans are unstoppable. And as his child, I am, I am in a relationship where he has me in his hands and the plans that he has for my life cannot be taken away from me. No circumstance, no trial, no suffering can stop the plans of God in my life. Amen? Ooh, I gotta get a better amen than that. 
Or I might believe I'm talking to a bunch of heathens. Amen? Amen. Yes. That's what I learned from this. God's plans are unstoppable. And as his child, the plans he has for my life is I walk in him, trust in him. Nothing can stop those things from happening. The second thing I want you to remind, remind you of from this is Jesus is committed to what we need, not what we want. Amen? Like I said, I guess if I was writing the story, it'd be like, and he overturned, or he, over, he overthrew Rome, and they had their kingdom back, and it's like King Arthur and the round table or something like that kind of story, and in fact, they went on and conquered the whole world. That's what they wanted, right? In fact, they wanted it so bad that they actually believed a guy riding on a donkey with no weapons and no army, they believed he was gonna do it because that's what they wanted so And Jesus is committed to what we need. He came in and he didn't overthrow Rome. He overthrew the tables in their temple. Because he's trying to communicate to them and to us that what we need more than anything is you don't need Roman bondage broken. You need sin bondage broken. That's what you need. You want this. You need this. You don't need to solve your problem with Rome. You need to solve the problem of your broken relationship with God. You see, that's what God does. He always knows exactly what we need. And sometimes, if you're like me, I don't always get what I want. And sometimes I'm on my knees before God saying, why, Lord, this looked so good. It made so much sense, and this would have been this way. And man, that's the way I just... And Lord, why, what is wrong with you? And I would remind you, this always reminds us, that Jesus is always about, he's committed to what we need and not necessarily what I want. I've never prayed, Lord, you didn't give me what I needed. Sometimes I prayed, Lord, you didn't give me what I wanted. But you know what I've learned? He knew exactly what he was doing. I really didn't need that. That want was, you know what I mean? Like, probably would have got me in trouble. He knew that. And he knew what would be most satisfying, most fulfilling in my life. And he's committed to what we need, not what we want. That's why... Romans 8, 28 means so much to so many of us because we've learned this, right? We know that all things work together for good, for, those of the, for, for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Last thing I want to tell you, though, 1134, all right? Six minutes. You watch me, six minutes. What else can I learn from this story? I've been fixated on what they said. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? 
What am I supposed to learn from that? What am I supposed to know? We all know that phrase, right? Now, none of us really use that in our daily language, right? (laughs) I have yet to somebody look at me and say, Hosanna. It's not our language. But to them, man, that was like, now some of you are going to do that. I know what's coming. (laughs) Kyle, you're going to like... Okay. (laughs) You know, but that was powerful stuff to them. That was a huge word for them. I began to think about and read and study what this word is. And I began to realize that it means two things. And you know why it goes this way and why they said what they did? Again, God is ordaining it to happen this way because these words that are proclaimed were words for that day, but they're words for every day. He is the Hosanna God. And these words mean something, not only to them, but it is, they said these words because that's exactly who he is. That's what should be said about him. I begin to look at this word Again, it's Psalms 118 where you kind of see it. And, and really, this word and its initial, its initial meaning was simply a cry for help. Save me. It's that kind of cry for help when, when you were a little kid and, and your dad or mom thought it would be good to teach you to swim by just throwing you in. Right? And you remember the emotion, like you're flying through the air and what's coming out of your mouth Maybe nothing's coming out of your mouth. You're like, help. I couldn't help but think of this. I got to tell this story fast. A few years ago, like five of us couples decided it'd be a good idea to go on vacation together in the church here. So we went to Gatlinburg. And um, I always say about that vacation, we had a lot of fun, but we didn't relax. Because there was 10 adults and like 19 kids. There you go. We had fun, we didn't relax. But, but one day, the guys and the boys decided to go on this river. You know, in Gatlinburg, you can get on a, it's like a real lazy river, not the one you can go to at an amusement park, but like you float for miles down this river. And, and so, if you know me, I didn't grow up around water much, and honestly, I didn't know how to swim hardly at all at that point in my life. Like, I'm a 36-year-old man, and I can't hardly swim. Like, I feel great in the hotel pool when it's only six foot. I feel like a champion. You get me out in something deeper than that, I panic. I didn't know how to swim very well, really. And so, but I'm like, nah, this is a lazy river. Most of it's like three feet. We're like walking sometimes to get our things going, right? Because they get stuck. Well, it just so happens. (laughs) You know how that is. Just so happens. We get in this area and water's running real fast and like there's a lot of water. But who cares? It's not that deep. And for some reason, it just had to be that place in all the miles of the river that I think I was trying to help Keegan with his, and it was real. I fall in. I'm going down, no big deal. I'm going to hit, you know, right here. What's up, guys? No, it wasn't three feet. It wasn't four feet. It wasn't six feet, which is what I am. It's like eight feet deep right there. They tell me later it was the only place in the river that was that deep. Thinking, yeah, that's my life. He was. I go down, and like I go down, and I like, and I come up above the water, and Brian Helberg's right beside me, and he's just looking at me, you know, like, 
Big deal. You must be having fun in the water, going to swim or something. I go back down. I come back out. Brian still just stares at me. I go down again. I come back up the third time. And what I say now is, that's my Hosanna face. Brian, I didn't have to say a word. He could see in my eyes, in my face, help this guy. Because all over my face was like, save me! That's what this Hosanna originally meant. You know that panic? Whatever it is for you? Monsters in the closet or... I had the Hosanna face and Brian saw it. He just reaches his arm out and like, I told those guys, you have just seen one of the most humiliating experiences of my life. You got to share it with me. You probably will not see anything more humiliating, so enjoy it. But um, that's Hosanna. That panic, that's what it meant. Save me. Help. But you know this word evolved through the years in their understanding and what it meant for them. It meant still that cry, save me. But it meant, save me, but I know you will. Save me, but I know you will. And they're crying this, Hosanna. And what they're saying is, we need salvation but you're the one that's going to do it. It's like if we were in a district football game, right? And some of you aren't from Napoleon, so you don't appreciate this. Just put your high school in there. I don't care. We're down by four, and they have the ball, and all of a sudden the running back breaks loose, and he heads for the end zone. And the safety's running, trying to get an angle on him tackling and half the crowd would be yelling get him get him that's old hosanna but half the crowd would be yelling you got him you got him that's new hosanna see there's a confidence that this word now means it's yeah i need help but you're the one that's going to help me And the whole tenor of the Passion Week is set, I believe, in these words. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord, that's messianic stuff. That's son of David. Son of David only means one thing, Messiah. And they're yelling out, help me, but you will. That's what this whole Easter thing is. Help me, but I know you will. You see, Jesus' passion as he sets the stage for the final events is in this phrase, Hosanna. Because his passion is for us to have a confidence in him. To live a Hosanna lifestyle. Help me, but I know you will. And my challenge to you is This week, I know some of you have trials, sufferings, disappointments, hard times, whatever. Things that you don't have an answer for. Things you've... Will you remember that we're Hosanna people? 
Help me, God. I need help. But I know you will. I'm confident in your ability. As your child, this comes up. Hosanna. Hosanna. Start speaking some Jewish, all right? Start Hosanna-ing it. Keep your confidence in the one who has promised. He will. Help. But I know you will. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we're your people, so we're Hosanna people. So appropriate on that Sunday that you had them say that because that's who you are. The God who saves. You're the Messiah. And Lord, we got to see the end of that week. We know what happened, and we've experienced that in us. Your resurrection power making us new and alive. But Lord, we still need to be reminded as we navigate through life, you're the Hosanna God, the saving God, the redeeming God. And our confidence can be sky high in you. And when we face circumstances, we Hosanna. Help, but I know you Go with us, speak to each one, encourage them in you today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, have a great day, have a great week.